Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. As I said before, we're going to switch the service up just a little bit, and um, in, in a few moments we will continue with singing, and a little bit later on the Lord's Supper. I'm going to take a quick poll of the people in this room, okay? If you enjoy gardening in any way, okay, and it could be flowers in your house, it could be a massive garden with tons of vegetables every year, if you enjoy gardening, raise your hand. Okay, so we're going to say, looks like a pretty good number here, maybe, maybe about half, okay? All right, so let's go to the flip side of that, though, all right? If about all you can do in gardening is maintain ficus trees, we know what ficus trees is? It's fake green, green stuff. If that's you, then raise your hand, okay? And every now and then I see a couple people around here going, hey, you need to be raising your hand right there. Um, I heard about one dad who picked on his daughter by telling her that when he retired, he was going to start a ficus tree farm and he was going to grow ficus trees. Y'all don't laugh as if that's funny, but that's funny, okay? <laughs> do you know what ficus trees are? They're fake, the fake trees. We don't have any up here anywhere, do we? No, we don't, okay? But they're fake trees. Um, all right, so let's think here for a moment, as if, as if you were a gardener, okay? If you take the, the root system of a plant and you put it into a pot, or maybe you put it into the ground, or, or maybe you take the seed and you put it into the ground, you're not done with that plant at all. In fact, if you just leave it there, there might be some growth that takes place, but that plant needs water, it needs fertilizer, it needs attention, it needs the weeds moved out from around it so it can get all the resources that it, that it needs. You've got to cultivate that plant. It needs sunlight, the right amount of sunlight. It might need to be pruned so that you can make sure that only the good stems on the plant are getting the resources, the nutrients that they, that they need. When a person becomes a Christian... I want for you to imagine that they are a seed being planted, okay? But now that that seed is planted, the ground's got to be worked, and that seed has got to be maintained in order for spiritual growth to take place in that new spiritual life. One of the most dangerous things that we can ever do is see a new Christian come to faith in Jesus and then leave them alone and, and, and have them fend for themselves, so this is where Groundworks comes in, and you see the, the emblem up there, the, the logo on the screen, Groundworks. This is a brand new series. For six weeks, we're going to be talking about Groundworks. And really, the idea behind this is that we're looking at some of the basic tenets of what it means to be a Christian. Now, we're not going to cover all of them, but the idea is that as a person grows in some of these areas that we're going to talk about in the next six weeks... They are growing spiritually, and the plant of their spiritual life is able to grow and mature because of the foundation that's been built. So today we're talking about the gospel. Next five weeks with the different pastors and myself a couple more times, we're going to talk about what it means to be a worshiper, what it means to be a family member or a church member. We're going to talk about what it means to be a servant, a steward, and a witness. And here's my prayer in all of this, okay? And this is what I've been praying leading up to today, and I want to let you know here's my prayer. It's that we all gain a greater understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus through this groundwork study. What does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And that's what I want for us to leave these six weeks with, okay? So this is the Groundworks series. Go to the Great Commission um, that Jesus gave his disciples right before he left earth. We find it in Matthew 28. You don't have to turn there. But what Jesus tells them to do is to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. 
So one disciple is to make another disciple who makes another disciple who makes another disciple, and the, the cycle continues in that, in that way. This Groundworks is, is talking about really the basics of that, how we make disciples. Now, as we talk through this Groundworks series, the goal is not information transfer. The goal is transformation. The goal is not information transfer. The goal is transformation. And if you have a handout that you would have received when you came in today, you can fill in the blanks. That's your first blanks to fill in, okay? The goal is not information transfer. The goal is transformation. Information is cheated if that information that you receive is not applied. The information is cheated if that information is not applied. So we're going to work through information, but our goal with all of this is for our lives to be transformed. Some time ago, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and he read me a letter that he received from a prison inmate. Um, and this inmate had heard of his preaching and, and listened to some of his sermons, and he's writing this pastor to let him know what an impact the gospel had made on him through the preaching of this pastor. He said, there's not a single one of the Ten Commandments that I have not broken. At age 21, I was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. He continues, recently I came across some messages of yours, and after listening for a while, I came to know Jesus as my Savior, and get this, he said, my life is completely changed. I came to know Jesus as my Savior, and my life is completely changed. Folks, this is the kind of change that Jesus makes in people's lives. And it doesn't matter if you're a bad person, like the inmate in the prison, or a good person, as in you've, you've attended the Baptist church your entire life. It doesn't matter. We all need this transformation, every single one of us. God's Word is clear in Romans. There is none who does good, nobody whatsoever. We all need this transformation of going from, from being an enemy of God to being a child of God and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this transformation takes place through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in our lives to make us more like Christ. So every week as we work through this Groundworks series, we've got a simple statement that kind of goes along with whatever it is we're talking about. Okay, so we're talking about the gospel today. Here's the simple statement that goes with that. The gospel is Jesus in my place. The gospel is Jesus in my place. I deserve to die for my sin, but Jesus died in my place so I wouldn't have to. I asked you earlier to take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 15, and, um, and we're going to use 1 Corinthians 15 to really help us understand the gospel. Jesus in my place. What does that mean? This is Paul writing. We're going to start reading in verse 1, so read along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, they have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So let's use this passage as a guide to kind of walk through the good news of Jesus in my place. All right? First of all, the gospel is our foundation for Christianity. The gospel is our foundation for Christianity. I'm going to go back and read verse 1 again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, at which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now when Paul uses that word stand there, he's saying that as Christians we stand on the foundation of the gospel. Now I stand up here, okay, and I know that this foundation that I'm standing on, this stage, is firm. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because I saw John Everhart building it solidly. In fact, as I'm walking through here one day, he needed me to hold something. So I held something, okay? I know how solid this stage is, so I know that I can trust it. It is a firm foundation for me to stand on. All spiritual beliefs and belief systems are grounded in something. Most often, religious belief systems are grounded in a person's ability in their ability to, to earn their way into a right standing with whatever God they believe in. For example, a Buddhist believes that inner peace in this life and eternal peace in the afterlife can be found if you follow the enlightened path that was laid out by Gautama, who later became known as the Buddha. Okay? The whole belief system for Buddhism is grounded in a person's faithfulness and ability to follow Buddha's path. It all relies on you. If you mess up, then you got to make up for that mess up somehow. If you're successful, then you hope that somehow you have done enough to get you into a better reincarnate life in the next life and eventually into long-lasting eternal peace. Judaism is another example of a misguided belief system. Judaism never moved from the Old Testament law into the New Testament age of grace. Their belief system is still grounded in the Torah, specifically the Mosaic Law. If you can keep all of God's commandments, then you will have a relationship with God and spend eternity with God. They're still looking for the Messiah to come and redeem them, not believing that Jesus himself is the Messiah. All right, what about Christianity? What's its foundation? Well, Christianity's foundation is the good news that Jesus, not me, not what I can do, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. We were born sinners, separated from God because of our sin. The penalty for sin is death. Something or someone has to die in order for that sin to be taken care of. And it can't just be any something or someone. It's got to be a pure, sinless animal or sinless person. In the Old Testament, an, an animal was, was sacrificed to cover up the sin of the people. The sin was still there. It wasn't taken away. Hebrews tells us that it was simply covered up. But then Jesus became the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who didn't just cover up the sin. He takes away the sin of the world. And that's God's plan. It's for our sin to be atoned for once and for all, but it included the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So the gospel, the good news that life is found in Jesus is the foundation of Christianity as a whole. 
Okay, but if the gospel is the foundation of Christianity, then let's break it down a little bit more, okay? The crux of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The crux of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at what Paul has to say starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul is saying that the message that he received from Jesus is of first importance. Nothing is more important than this. Nothing that this life could bring you is more important than this. This is the premier decision that you will make in your entire life. The message that he received from Jesus is that Jesus died the death that mankind deserved to die, but he defeated the hold of death with the resurrection. Death couldn't hold him captive anymore. You're in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at the very end of the chapter, okay? So it's starting in verse 54. Well, so here's what Paul says about death. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. In other words, when this physical body puts on the eternal body and the mortal puts on immortality. Same idea there. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? He taunts death here. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He continues on, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where does that victory over death come from? It comes from Jesus. That's what we just found right there. All right, you're still in 1 Corinthians 15. Now look at verses 19 through 22. 19 through 22. Here's what Paul says. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love this idea, okay? He's saying, listen, if, if, if in Christ, as Christians, we only have hope for this life that we're in right now, boy, what a pity it is. We're just, we're just idiots. He continues, though, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he is the first resurrection. Our resurrection will come later. He continues, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, all humans die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ will be made alive once and for all. The crux of the gospel, the center point of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is of utmost importance We believe and preach Christ crucified and raised the third day because that is where our hope and that is where our life comes from. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. All right, now a person may ask the question, well, how do I know this is true? Is the resurrection legit or is it just a fairy tale to help some people live a better life, make it through the difficulties of this life? Here's my next point. The legitimacy of the gospel is proven. The legitimacy of the gospel is proven. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. That he appeared to Cephas after the, resur- after the resurrection. He appeared to Peter. That's who Cephas is, Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. It's almost like Paul's like regretting the fact that he was born later than the other disciples and apostles. Jesus was clearly seen after he rose from the dead. And listen, there's no scandal here, okay? Uh, when, when a person goes to trial for a crime and there's a host of, of eyewitnesses, think about a stadium full of people, okay? Our gym, 500 people in that gym, see this thing take place. There's all these eyewitnesses. There's no question whatsoever that that actually took place, right? There's probably not, it's not real hard to get a conviction out of that. Now, we're not talking about a trial or a conviction here, but it's kind of the same idea. Chuck Colson was at the center of the Watergate scandal under President Nixon. He later became a believer, and one of the things that he had to say about those who had challenged the, the, the resurrection of Jesus was this. He said, when I am challenged on the resurrection, my answer is always that the disciples and 500 others gave eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus risen from the tomb. But then I'm asked, well, how do you know they were telling the truth? Maybe they were perpetuating a hoax. My answer to that comes from an unlikely source, Watergate. Watergate involved a conspiracy perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, he testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment. Maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men. Peasants, really. We're facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have, been made, a deal with, would have made a deal with the authorities, but none did. He concludes by saying, Men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. They will never give their lives for something they know to be false. If the testimony of the early disciples is not enough to convince you that the resurrection is true, then how do you explain Hoel, a man who was saved during one of our mission trips down in Honduras? He was a drunk. He was abusive to his wife. He was known as the guy that no one should ever talk to because he was so mean. Hoel was far from God, but then he was saved and his life was completely changed. In fact, his wife said that she would wait and see if the change was legit before she accepted Jesus as her Savior. And after a while, she saw that, yep, this is, this is legitimate. And she gave her life to Christ as well. What about the lives of the other people around you? The gospel is so powerful that it should radically change a person. Their whole countenance should look alive. They should act like they're full of life, giving testimony to the fact that the gospel is true simply by the way that they live their lives. You see, the power of the gospel is our salvation. 
It's not anything that we can do. It's not man-made. It's not of this earth. It is completely supernatural, every bit of it. Paul ends this part of 1 Corinthians 15 by talking about the salvation that he experienced through the gospel. It's not by his work, even though he was the smartest guy in the room, the most driven, the most passionate across the board, he was the one that would say, you know what, look at what I did. But he didn't. It's all according to God's grace, he says. My life was transformed, he says, according to the gospel. He was killing Christians, thinking they were heretics. But when he found out the truth about Jesus, man, what a difference it made in his life. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The good news of Jesus in my place is powerful. One decision to follow Jesus changes everything. One momentary but lasting decision to proclaim that Jesus alone is your Lord will change the rest of your life. There was a pastor and theologian author by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse who was driving his young children to his wife, their mother's funeral. He was looking for a way to explain to them what was going on because it was all so confusing. They're on their way to the gravesite in the car, and they passed a truck going as they were coming this way. A truck was coming this way, and they he turned to his daughter and he said, "Honey, would you be would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck?" She said, "I'd rather be hit by the shadow." He said this. He said, "The truck hit Jesus, so that mommy only had to be hit by the shadow." I think that's why when, when David is writing the 23rd Psalm, he talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows that as God's sheep with the Lord as his shepherd, that only the shadow of death is going to touch him because the real thing is covered by Jesus. At the time, Jesus hadn't lived yet, but he was covered under the law. It's the same thing for us today. The truck doesn't have to hit us. The shadow's going to at some point. This physical body is going to die. Your physical body is going to die. But for those who are Christians, you're not getting hit by the truck. You're getting hit by the shadow of it. And it's ushering you into an eternity with God. You may be here today and you've been relying on your works to get into heaven, but your works are not going to get you anywhere. I love the promise of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Some of you may be here and you've been putting off making a decision to follow Jesus alone. You're thinking, you got time. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says that now is the favorable time. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that no one knows when Jesus is coming back except God the Father. And there's no way that you're going to know when you take your last breath. When Jesus does come back, though, or when you do take your last breath, would you rather be hit by the truck of death for all eternity or would you rather be hit by the shadow of the truck? All it takes to find eternal life is this. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. It's not a maybe. It's a promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's all it takes. It's a momentary but eternal decision. If you've never done so, then today is the day of salvation. And you can pray a simple prayer just right there in your seat, or maybe for those who are at home, you can pray a simple prayer that goes something like this. Father, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Will you save me from my sin? And God's word says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Father, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Will you save me from my sin? If you prayed that prayer today, or maybe you're at home and you prayed that prayer, I want to hear about it. Let you know, here's the next steps for you in your walk with Christ. Church, look at the gospel. Jesus in my place. Nothing but Jesus. Nothing I can bring to the table. No work. No anything. Nothing but Jesus in my place. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to praise Jesus for that. Singing, all I have is Christ, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus in my place. I don't have to be hit by the truck. I will be hit by the shadow of the truck, but Lord, then that ushers me into an eternity with you. Father, if there's anyone who has never placed their faith and trust in Jesus and repented of their sin and proclaimed Jesus as Lord of their lives, then Father, I pray that today is the day of salvation for them. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.